Welcome to another episode of Bow Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. I'm Jason Silverman, pediatric gastroenterologist from Edmonton, Alberta, and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Jennifer Lee. Hi, Jason. How you doing? Good. I was am so happy that you came to Columbus finally. It was, you know, I have been encouraged is the polite way of saying it, maybe nagged. Uh, to come to Columbus for for the last three years yeah. that we've been doing the yeah. you know five last four years. almost well, five, five, well four in our in our fifth year <laughs> doing this podcast basically from the beginning I've been open invitation to come down to Columbus pretty much any time and it just hasn't worked out and then I was able to go to the World Congress in Pediatric Neurogastroenterology and Motility Conference in Columbus which was a fantastic meeting yeah um, very relevant for myself not as a modalist but as someone who does a lot of general GI a lot mm-hmm. of applicable stuff um, but it was of course also just amazing to, to get a chance to, to hang out with uh, you and Peter in your natural environment and, and yes. lots of the great folks at uh, Nationwide and got to tour around the facility you got to walk around the and i'm blanking on what, what it's magic called forest. the magic forest the magic <laughs> forest was was beautiful so cool it was very very jealous um yeah it was a lot of fun and uh, got to do tailgating at yeah. uh, an osu game which is uh, you know as a canadian we we just we don't do the tailgating thing for like any sports like, well, it's too cold your sports are hockey it's inside it's very cold yeah no no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but like even even for summer sports like you know base, you know blue jays baseball or, or whatever we just don't do the tailgating thing. So it was a novel experience. It oh, was good. so much fun. I, I really appreciated the chance to head down there. And now I'm going to turn the pressure around and, and you guys have to make good on your promise to come north. We'll head out to the mountains. Yes, 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 yes. Maybe in, well, now that I've just had that baby, maybe a couple years. Okay, okay. So maybe not next year, but maybe we can look at the next year after that. Okay. It so did you, take you four years to get down. So okay, you, you heard it here first. So uh, <laughs> by season seven of Bow Sounds, uh, Jen and Peter and Tamara will have visited Alberta. Yes. <laughs> so today we are going to talk about a really important topic for pediatricians, pediatric gastroenterologists, pediatric general surgeons, pulmonologists, and more. We are talking about tracheoesophageal fistula and importantly, esophageal atresia. This important congenital anomaly carries a whole host of potential future health implications that are really important to understand and to manage. And we had the great fortune of interviewing Dr. Christoph Four in person in Columbus when you were there, mm-hmm. Jason. We were all in Peter's office, by the way. <laughs> it's true. Um, and he was also attending the World Congress on Pediatric Neurogastroenterology and Motility meeting that just happened last yeah. month. Yeah, it, it was really great having an opportunity to meet with Dr. Four and really dig into esophageal atresia. And as he is a really a leading expert in the field. So Dr. Four is a professor of pediatrics at the Université de Montréal and a pediatric gastroenterologist at CHU Saint-Justin, also in Montreal. Um, And he's worked in the area of pediatric GI motility for over 20 years. He's published over 120 peer-reviewed papers, 40 book chapters, and co-edited the, underline the, one (laughs) textbook on pediatric neurogastroenterology. Did you just do that because they call themselves the Ohio State 
No. Okay, it, just, it, just it's just literally because it's the only <laughs> textbook on pediatric neurogastroenterology. Oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, so, but he is also the director of the Esophageal Atresia Clinic at Saint Justin, and he runs a basic science research lab focused on discovering the mechanisms behind esophageal atresia and studying new treatments based on tissue engineering. And so, obviously, we couldn't think of anyone better to cover this important topic. It was a great discussion with a really, really nice man. Uh, and we can't wait to share it with you. Yeah, on to the show. On to the show. Dr. Four, thank you so much for joining us on Balsans today. Thank you. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. That's great. And so we're going to start with a question that most of our guests find a little bit challenging. But for our listeners that don't know you, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? Or maybe in more than one sentence. <laughs> well, hello to everyone. Uh, I was born in France and I studied medicine and tra- was trained in pediatrics and pediatric gastroenterology in Paris. And I moved to Montreal in 2001, so s- almost 22 years ago. Uh, I moved to Chus-Saint-Justine, which is a French-speaking hospital in Montreal, in the, in, in the affiliated to Université de Montréal, which is a French-speaking university in Montreal. And I take up a position of um, professor of pediatrics in, in Montreal. In Montreal uh, and in the GI group of uh, Saint-Justine, I'm in charge of the digestive motility and sensitivity laboratory, and I practice mostly neurogastroenterology. I co-edited the only textbook on pediatric neurogastroenterology with very good friends, and uh, I also started the EATF clinic in 2005, providing multidisciplinary care for these patients. Well, that's perfect. I mean, that definitely fills the bill for our topic today. So, uh, so glad that you could join us. And it gives us a great sense of your backstory. For sure. I think that might be the longest one we've <laughs> I'm had. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> you get the record. Although, okay, just for our listeners, just to clarify, EATF. Yes, I'm sorry. EATF okay. means esophageal atresia with or without tracheoesophageal fistula. Exactly. And we're talking about esophageal atresia today. So perfect. Um, before we move on to the topic, you're in Montreal. The World Congress was just there a few years ago. But if we were ever to come back to see you there, what would you recommend that we do? Well, Montreal is a very cosmopolitan city with a terrific cultural life and a lot of restaurants from all over the world. Uh, It's a city to visit on foot with a historic district that's unique in North America. And it's a city at the crossroads of Europe and North America. And maybe that's why I like living here. Yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic city. uh, As we're recording this, I was there maybe three weeks ago oh, or four yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, we, uh, I was in uh, I was in Toronto visiting family and uh, my wife and I had a chance to get away for a few days without children. And uh-huh. we went to Montreal and spent a few days walking around old Montreal and uh, yeah. just taking in the life. I love what they've done with the pedestrian-only streets yeah. that they have in the central mm-hmm. uh, part of Montreal. Uh, it, it's such a fun city. Yeah, it's yeah. a nice city, yeah. I just remember from World Congress the uh, coffee and the croissants. 
<laughs> so good. Dress like in France. Yes. <laughs> I think I was more caffeinated that week than maybe at any conference. Maybe I, that's why I remember the most about that conference. <laughs> I learned the most. Anyway, so you want to talk about our topic? Should yes, we? absolutely. So really following on with our, our guest expertise, today we're going to talk all about esophageal atresia. And, you know, we learn about this condition in medical school. We also will encounter it in our practices. But how did you develop your specific interest in following this group of patients? <clears throat> well, I decided to set up this clinic, this uh, multidisciplinary EATF clinic at St. Justine, when I realized that many patients were considered cured by the surgeon who had operated these patients. I realized then that following up these patients, after even the most successful surgery required careful multidisciplinary follow-up, including not only gastroenterologists, but also respirologists, ENT, and also a lot of professionals around the patient, such as nutrition, psychology, social work, OT, speech therapy. And it's also sometimes necessary to call around the patients other specialties such as cardiology, orthopedics, or anything. And I thought that only a structured clinic can offer these families and children quality care in a single location. And our model has been very successful, and uh, I think it has been replicated in other hospitals. I mean, I love that because it's really focused on the family, which yeah. I think is the most important thing that we do. And, you know, esophageal atresia, like atresia of the esophagus, food cannot go down. Eating your most basic thing is Absolutely. not possible. Can you, for our listeners, walk us through the different spectrum of congenital abnormalities seen with esophageal atresia? Yes. Yeah, so... First of all, there are different types of esophageal atresia. Board exam question. <laughs> <laughs> the most frequent is the type C with esophageal atresia and fistula, tracheoesophageal fistula. Yeah. The uh, second, uh, the second, the most frequent uh, type is a type A without no fistula and only esophageal atresia. Uh, this is probably the most complicated cases. And there are mm -hmm. a lot of other types, uh, more, uh, well, less frequent. Mm. Sometimes these patients have associated uh, malformation, such as cardiac malformation, limb uh, malformation, uh, anal malformation. So, and it can be uh, structured just like syndromes, just like vector syndrome, including a lot of malformation, uh, vertebral malformation. And, uh, of course, the morbidity associated with the malformation is depending on the associated malformation. Mm -hmm. so, it's, uh, it's, so the spectrum is very large and it's uh, reflected by the length of stay of the patient. The most simple patients may stay maybe 10 days in the hospital after the surgery and the most complicated may stay one year in the hospital. Wow, mm, that's a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the vectoral association. Uh, association because we have the, you know, the board question for the different types of esophageal atresia for pediatricians and pediatric GI. The vectoral association is a typical question to ask medical students rotating through <laughs> pediatrics. <laughs> Name what it stands for. So yeah, uh, it's yeah. an important one to know. And you're right, they can be so complicated to, to manage all aspects of their care. 
Which is why that multidisciplinary clinic is so great. I'm Absolutely. so glad that that has been. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you were part of an author group that produced the ESPGAN, NASPGAN guidelines for the evaluation and treatment of complications related to EA, TEF in 2016. So about seven years ago now. Mm-hmm. And you later helped study uh, how well clinicians knew the guidelines in a paper in 2021. <laughs> it's always nice when people who publish guidelines, then go back and say, okay, are you aware that we publish guidelines? <laughs> Do you know what to follow? Um, so we obviously can't address everything in both of those papers within the time we have today, but we thought we'd highlight some of the GI and nutritional complications that children with EA may develop. So certainly children with EA have clear risk factors for problematic reflux. It makes a lot of sense. Can you review with us the various contributing factors and the short and long-term risks of GERD in this population? Yes, it's a, it's a good question. And reflux, as well as the reflux, is reported with a very high frequency in this patient. And in the literature, it ranges between 40 to 80% of mm-hmm. the patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Many factors can contribute to the occurrence of uh, the reflex and also to the severity. Firstly, anatomical anomalies uh, linked to uh, the surgery and to the traction on the uh, esophage uh, during anastomosis with a change in the position of the cardia at the diaphragmatic hiatus may modify the anatomy of the esophagus and, and, uh, and favor reflex. In addition, esophageal motility abnormalities associated to the EA-TF in the esophagus, which uh, this uh, dysmotility being either primary related to the malformation itself or secondary related to surgery, uh, this dysmotility also contribute to the occurrence of reflex and to the severity of reflex. These motor anomalies aggravate esophageal clearance leading to severe complications. These complications include peptic esophagitis, sometimes very severe, as I said, and the possibility in the long-term outcome of gastric or intestinal metaplasia. And this is, these two later complications can be reported very early in the life of this patient. And this is a very important point. The occurrence of peptic stenosis is really rare and barely found in these patients because probably they are largely treated with PPI. Mm. Reflex can also contribute to respiratory or ENT complication, but proving that reflex is responsible and not only associated for this complication is sometimes difficult and probably sometimes abusive. And it's probably uh, why reflex is uh, often wrongly blamed for respiratory symptoms that are actually and probably more often linked to tracheomalacia than uh, reflex. Anti-reflex surgery in the context of esophageal atresia is not without its problem because creating a valve uh, in the cardia of an esophagus that is itself dysmotile can lead to worsening dysphagia and feeling problems. Hey, so uh, there's a, l- a lot to unpack there. Obviously, you talked uh, a lot about basically the anatomy and the resulting, uh, what results from the surgical repair itself as being a risk factor for driving reflux, leading to a very high rate of, of reflux seen in children. 
variable severity, but obviously a lot of risk there. And then you mentioned briefly that PPIs are useful and help prevent some of the complications. And I'm going to circle back to that. And then you talked also about uh, anti-reflex surgery or fund application as a management technique. So when we are looking at children post-repair for esophageal atresia, should we be treating them with PPI right away? And if so, how long do we continue them on PPI? And then I know you said, and I understand absolutely that uh, fund applications are not without their own complications because of the esophageal dysmotility, but when should we be thinking about possibly going there with some of these kids? Well, let me ask, um, before you answer that, so when do you start PPI? Mm -hmm. But does it have to be a PPI, Uh, right? Can we do H2 blocker? Can we step down to that? Like, what what do you do in that scenario? Yeah, so it's a... It's a big question for for this patient. Actually, the recommendation that we published in 2016 suggests treating patients very early, just after esophageal atresia reaper, Mm -hmm. from birth to one year of age, without any selection of patients. At present, the data in the literature might suggest that this recommendation is maybe abusive. Since PPI are not without side effects, Mm -hmm. and since systematic PPI treatment does not appear to prevent the occurrence of anastomotic structure. And this was our aim when we recommended Mm -hmm. that. It is probably necessary to select and maybe more stratify those patients who might actually require systematic treatment with PPI. We could imagine that this systematic treatment may be reserved for situations we know to favor the development of complication. For instance, uh, the situation involving significant traction on the anastomosis or complication after surgery such as anastomotic leakage. We know that these are very big f- uh, uh, factors mm. for uh, anastomotic structure. But, of course, children's, children with demonstrated peptic esophagitis or EOE, they, of course, require, with no discussion, long-term PPI treatment. Mm. Regarding the choice between PPI or uh, H2 uh, blockers, uh, we, we choose to put PPI on the recommendation because they are the most effective treatment. Yeah. And they are very well tolerated. They are not without side effects. Uh, but so uh, uh, we, we still recommend PPIs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then just following on from that for the discussion around the fund application, yeah. are there still recognizing the potential downsides of the surgery? Are there still some of these kids that should get a fund application or warrant a fund application? What we think is that sometimes uh, fund application is indicated in intractable uh, reflex. Intractable means that PPI does not uh, cure the, the esophagitis. Or if you are really able to demonstrate that uh, respiratory complications are related to reflex. Mm. The other quite clear indication for fund application is refractory anastomotic structures. We don't know exactly why because I said previously that reflex does not, is not a risk factor for anastomosis structure. But the experience shows that um, sometimes, and most often in refractory structures, 
the, um, an asthmatic stricture can be cured uh, after from duplication. Interesting. Interesting. So I'd like to, that that's actually leads perfectly into some of our next discussion, which is really the role for endoscopy, but also the role of pH impedance. So you had, you know, mentioned proving that the respiratory symptoms are related to reflux. So will you walk us through what you typically do for these patients as far as their endoscopic surveillance and use of a pH impedance probe? Okay, so maybe we can uh, talk, first of all, uh, on pH and impedance. Okay. First of all, impedance metry in EATF patients is extremely difficult to interpret because of the dilatation yeah. of the esophagus. Like, where do you even put the end of the Exactly. <laughs> when do you put the end? <laughs> and how end? do you say? Because most often the esophagus of this patient is full of liquids yeah. because mm-hmm. they, they struggle with the motility. So, and by definition, if you have liquids in the esophagus, your impedance is very low. Right. Mm. So, trying to see decrease or drop in impedance in a patient who has already a very low impedance is very difficult. Mm-hmm. So, it's quite difficult to interpret. pH uh, monitoring is probably the best because mm-hmm. we, we, we can monitor pH without any, uh, any problems. And I think the most important thing in this context is to, uh, to correlate clinical symptoms with drops in the pH monitoring. So it's very important to try to correlate reflux and symptoms to demonstrate a relationship between reflux and symptoms. Let me ask a follow-up there because we've been talking about pH impedance, but with endoscopy, there's also the Bravo device that does the pH monitoring, but no impedance. So do you use that sometimes if you're trying to do the symptoms or is it mostly the impedance that you also want? Yeah, it's a good question. I have no experience with Bravo. Mm, okay. So I don't know. And we did not recommend any, any, uh, anything with Bravo. Gotcha. Okay. That but it sense. could be a good idea because we scope a lot yeah. with patients. Yeah, you just and it could be, it could it right be nice. It takes to, two to, days worth. Yeah, days exactly. Nice. Uh, and the role of endoscopy is, is really really uh, important mm-hmm. uh, endoscopy with biopsies of course mm-hmm. uh, and uh, monitoring this patient is uh, is mandatory endoscopically uh, and we recommended in uh, in 2016 performing a first endoscopy after one year so between one and two years after uh, cessation of PPI treatment mm-hmm. to make sure that we have no um, complication after uh, the cessation of PPI. Mm. And um, we recommended also uh, first endoscopy at around 10 years of age and at the end of the follow-up in pediatrics in during adolescence to make sure that we did not miss any complication, even if the patient do not present any symptoms. And it's very important to uh, realize that. And literature is clear it's, there is absolutely no correlation between patients' symptoms and endoscopic findings. That means that you can find a very severe uh, esophagitis, peptic esophagitis, in a patient without any complaints. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to not rely on the symptoms, but to organize a systematic endoscopic follow-up on this patient. Well, and you mentioned earlier that with proton pump inhibitors, there's really less complications of metaplasia that you're seeing. 
No, I did no. not say that. Oh, maybe I <laughs> Okay, maybe I misunderstood No, I did not say that. that. Unfortunately, we, we, have no, we have no data to demonstrate that. Oh, we that. don't know that. No, okay, maybe that's one's my misunderstanding. But it should. It should, of course. Yeah. It should, but yeah. we don't know but exactly. But we don't know. What we say uh, regarding, uh, what, what we know regarding intestinal metaplasia or, intest or gastric metaplasia is that it's found Mm -hmm. very early in the life of this patient. That's what you said, And what yeah. we uh, have to understand is if these patients are more prone to develop gastric metaplasia or intestinal metaplasia than non-EA children. Mm -hmm. And we, we have some data uh, showing that maybe intrinsically the epithelium of, this, of these children is mm -hmm. more susceptible to develop metaplasia than non-EA patient. And um, that means that, again, the follow-up is, is really mandatory. Uh, but we don't know if PPI, systematic PPI, will prevent that. Right. A we good future study. Um, <laughs> so when we're doing this surveillance looking for metaplasia, what about the biopsies? Where do you get the biopsies for those patients? Yeah, it's, it's a good question also. The biopsies should be as recommended for follow-up of uh, metaplasia. Mm -hmm. That means you need a lot of biopsies mm -hmm. in the four mm -hmm. quadrants of the, um, uh, of, the, uh, of the cardia or of the lesion. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize the metaplasia. And I think, for instance, using NBI during the endoscopy is really important because sometimes, because of the traction of the esophagus during surgery, you find that you have gastric mucosa, which maybe could be metaplasia. Mm -hmm. But actually, the gastric mucosa is normal, but has been tracted ah, during surgery. That makes sense, because so, of the stretching exactly. and it comes up there. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure that this is not the stomach, and it's really a metaplasia. That's why NBI is important to make sure that you see the Z-line mm -hmm. and you have to clearly see the gastric folds mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, the Z-line is in, in the right place yes. and not with, uh, uh, too high mm -hmm. in the esophagus. Okay. Uh, Just to follow up on the, the monitoring piece, because I... You know what I what I remember hearing you you say is we should be doing endoscopy at you know at the completion of PPI after one year of age at least according to the original recommendations uh -huh. and then at about ten years of age and then before at the transition. end before transition yeah. to the adult world in those children where you are seeing severe peptic esophagitis you are continuing them on PPI. I'm assuming that should modify for us how often we feel like we need to go back in and, and survey uh, these children. Um, how frequently are we looking at these more problematic kids? I think that, it, of course, you have to make sure that if you, you found an uh, peptic esophagitis or an EOE, we did not talk about EOE, but it, we can also find EOE in this patient. Um, you have to make sure that the treatment that you started is working. So you have to check for the, the, the endoscopy after, I will say, at least six months. And then you have to follow them uh, clinically. And I would say, and there are no recommendations, but my own practice is to, uh, to uh, control the endoscopy every two years. Mm. Okay. 
And of course, we did not talk about symptomatic patients because this is the systematic surveillance. Mm -hmm. But of course, if a patient, and maybe we'll talk about that later, uh, if there is any symptoms or any, uh, any dysphagia or anything, you have to check mm. to, uh, to uh, perform an endoscopy. Definitely more frequently than that then. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, you talked about dysmotility. And actually, we're doing this interview live in person as part of the World Neurogastroenterology Conference. Mm -hmm. So moving beyond reflux to talk about dysmotility. Um, these patients have a lot of symptoms at times. Can you talk about how we evaluate these patients for dysmotility now? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a, it's a, dysmotility is a huge problem. And they, they lead to... Uh, uh, they have different consequences. The first consequence, especially in young children, is the feeding problems mm -hmm. and dysphagia. Uh, it's just to, to have an idea, uh, in uh, older children and adults, if you uh, ask if they have any problem, they say, no, everything is okay in my life. And if you ask them if sometimes they have problem of dysphagia to swallow solids or anything, they say yes, mm. uh, and 80% of them say yes. Because it's so that, normal for them. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that, that seems, that, 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 uh, <laughs> that means that uh, they, uh, they live with that mm -hmm. since birth, and uh, it's, it's, it's not a problem for them. But in, in, in smaller infants, of course, uh, this dysmotility is a problem and may have consequences for uh, the diversification of alimentation of this patient. And I think that uh, regarding dysphagia, we uh, need to differentiate between acute situation with sudden or rapidly worsening uh, dysphagia and symptoms of dysphagia and more chronic situation. Uh, in acute situations, it's important to ensure that a treatable cause is present. And it's therefore very important to explore these children using contrast studies or endoscopy with biopsies. This will uh, clearly demonstrate whether there is anastomotic stenosis, anastomotic stricture, peptic esophagitis, EOE, or infectious uh, esophagitis, such as uh, candidiasis. If this causes, and it's uh, true also for the chronic situation, if these causes have been eliminated, then it's, the dysphagia is probably related to the esophageal dysmotility. Mm. And uh, regarding the how to study these patients and how to make sure that they, they have a, a dysmotility problem in their autophagus. Uh, we have, of course, a high-resolution manometry, mm -hmm. uh, which is very invasive. And uh, it has been really uh, important to use this technique to demonstrate that almost all patients have dysmotility and have uh, uh, abnormal tracings. Mm. Unfortunately, uh, we have clearly demonstrated the different pattern of esophageal dysmotility in this patient, but we did not find any correlation between these uh, patterns on esophageal uh, manometry and the symptoms. Even using the most recent uh, uh, technique of interpretation with impedance and high-resolution manometry, we did not find any correlation between the um, manometry and the symptoms. So it is quite disappointing. Mm. But 
I think that it's probably because the dysphagia is also, it, it's a, a subjective symptom. Mm -hmm. And that's what we say just previously. Even if they have objectively dysmotility, they do not struggle with it. Mm -hmm. And they can live with it and they, they, they learn to live with it. And it's not a problem for them. It's mm -hmm. not a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another possibility would be the underflip. Because oh, yeah. we scrub mm -hmm. them so they sleep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we could uh, use underflip during uh, the anesthesia. We have not a lot of data so far. It's pretty new. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for, for sure, it's something to, to, to look at. Okay. Yeah. I think you raise a really good point in the history. Uh, and it's one I always bring up with pediatric residents and medical students who work with me in clinic. When they ask about dysphagia, they initially just say, do you have any difficulty swallowing? No. But if you actually spell out what you mean or what are the symptoms that you might see, or you ask the parent, how long does it take them to finish a Sorry. meal? Are they constantly drinking throughout the meal? Are they, you know, appearing to avoid certain foods that cause them trouble? Um, it's amazing how much is revealed because you're right, they, they just adapt. And this is how life is. And this is what I do to eat. It's normal. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> But you know what? This can be a problem in adults. Because even if uh, they have symptoms, it's normal for them. Mm -hmm. They have completely adapted their life with these symptoms. And they do not seek medical attention. Mm -hmm. And this is a real problem because they need a systematic surveillance. And that's why we published recently guidelines for the transition of this patient, mm -hmm. recommending a systematic uh, endoscopic surveillance in adulthood for this patient. Because we know that if we uh, scope all a, a series of adult patients without any complaints, we mm -hmm. find a lot of complication, mm -hmm. not only uh, uh, peptic esophagitis, but also metaplasia and possibly cancers. Okay. So that's why it's absolutely important to transition correctly. This mm -hmm. So we've talked about our children with dysphagia that we now have identified by careful history. And we have, uh, we have done our investigations to document that this is due to dysmotility. Mm -hmm. It's not due to a stricture or stenosis. It's not due to uh, some A, a you know severe reflux esophagitis etc so now that we've identified the child that has dysphagia or uh, excuse me uh, dysphagia and dysmotility as the reason for that how do we manage them how do we help them unfortunately we have not a lot of drugs uh, which are really effective We can try uh, uh, Pride where it's available. Uh, in Canada, we can use it. We have to uh, ask permission to Health Canada. It's complicated, mm -hmm. but it's still available. I know it's not available in the U.S., but uh, so and sometimes it helps. We can try Botanical, which is a very uh, powerful prokinetic drug, but with a lot of side effects. And we also recently uh, tr uh, started to prescribe Procalapride. Mm -hmm. But honestly, uh, it doesn't work very well. So actually, they adapt themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it's too uh, difficult, so we ask uh, the nutritionist to uh, coach them and to adapt their food 
to, uh, to, to, to help them. Mm. Okay. So not a lot we can do. But if the cause of their dysphagia is actually a stricture, can you walk us through that approach? So, you know, before we do that, how, how common are strictures? And then we do have stuff we can do in that situation. Yeah. So anastomotic strictures are extremely uh, common uh, in, the, uh, in the history of this patient, especially during the first two years. It's reported around uh, the incidence of anastomosis fracture is reported around in around forty percent uh, of the patients. Of course, it depends on uh, the the malformation, as we said uh, before. But uh, uh, mean, the, the mean incidence is forty percent, so that means it's it's really high, mm-hmm. and uh, it's important to check for them. And uh, we don't know exactly why an anastomosis fracture will develop. But as we said, we know what are the risk factors. And uh, again, I, I say that this is probably related to the surgery and to the malformation. If the traction is very important, we imagine that it can uh, lead uh, to uh, difficulties for vascularization of the anastomosis leading to a stricture. And uh, if there are uh, uh, some uh, inflammatory processes around the anastomosis, when, for instance, we have an anastomotic leakage after surgery, this is also a very important risk factor. As we say, the role of uh, reflux is debated, but it does not appear to be a real determining factor. The symptoms that could uh, raise suspicion of uh, uh, stricture uh, in small children and it's probably the most important thing to know, uh, is, uh, are not really specific, just like in older children when they eat solids. It can look like uh, uh, excessive regurgitations, coughing, difficulty to clear the secretion in the upper pouch. Uh, and th- again, this is not really specific. So you have to think about, if you see these small babies, to think about uh, anastomotic stricture if they have such non-specific symptoms. Mm. In the solid-fed uh, children, uh, it's, of course, easier. They have uh, they struggle to uh, swallow uh, solids. Uh, they have food impactions, and, and uh, they, they eat very slowly, etc. So it's probably easier to, uh, to, to think about uh, structure. So, and then one once we, we have an anastomotic structure, we can be demonstrated by a biome swallow, the treatment is uh, dilatation, uh, endoscopic dilatation. And uh, what uh, is uh, not clear in the literature is if a systematic dilatation program just after the surgery, a couple of weeks after surgery, is uh, superior to dilatation on demand according to the symptoms, mm. is better. We don't know, but, uh, and we did not recommend anything about that. But uh, we, we, uh, we recommended that as soon as you have an anastomotic structure, you have to dilate it. The number of dilatation required depends on the severity of the structure, of course. And uh, sometimes we have what we call a refractory or recurrent structure. That is when uh, the children needs more, it depends. The, the definition of recurrent structure is not clear. Uh, it can be after three uh, dilatation or after four, five dilatation that is considered as a recurrent, but 
it's not really a big question. Uh, the, the problem is that we have to, to, to find something to prevent the recurrence of this stricture in these, uh, in these patients. And we can, uh, we can use triamcinolone injection after the dilatation mm -hmm. to try to prevent the fibrosis and the recurrence of the stricture. Some papers uh, have shown that uh, application of mitomitin C could also help for the recurrence of stricture. And sometimes when the scar is very important, some endoscopics, uh, endoscopists are able to cut the scar and to uh, treat the, the stricture and the anastomosis to avoid the recurrence of the stricture. Can you tell us about the technique that you use for the dilation? Are we talking, like, do you use the balloons, balloon dilation? Do you use bougies, yeah. or how do you yeah. do it? Uh, personally, I use the balloon. Uh, balloon. When the stricture is very complicated or difficult, we are always doing the dilatation uh, with fluoroscopy, with the help of fluoroscopy, mm -hmm. to make sure that we put the balloon in the right direction and we do not go in the mediastinum. Oh, yeah. uh, so we have to make sure that we are, we are in the other figures, ex especially when the structure is very tight mm -hmm. and not, not really, uh, really easy to dilate. And then we use the balloon, mm -hmm. CRE, and um, we, uh, the, the diameter is depending on the age. Of course, for the small baby, the diameter is uh, lower than in older uh, children. And uh, once it's done, and I think that what I can say is you have to see a little bleeding when you have dilated your patient. Because if you don't see anything, it's you probably anything. because yeah. you did not do anything. Yes. And uh, sometimes it's scary, but I think it's important to, if you delay the patient, you have to dilate him correctly. Yeah. It's some, some centers util, uh, uses, uh, use uh, bougies, mm -hmm. but I have no experience with bougie. And then after you've done the original dilation, do you bring them back at a certain time frame, kind of preemptively, or do you wait until the symptoms recur? Yeah, uh, again, it's a really good question. I think it's depending on the stage of the, uh, the, the, the age of the patient. If you have a very small patient of maybe uh, six weeks, uh, you dilate him, and I recommend to go back maybe two to three weeks after because he's very it's probably important Small. to delay mm -hmm. him again mm -hmm. to, to, to have a program of, dil of dilatation to help him. Uh, if you have your first stricture maybe at one year of age and you see that the stricture is uh, uh, important because he had symptoms or, he, for instance, he had a food impaction, you can delay the patient and see what happened because it's probably not a, a very tight stricture. Mm -hmm. it, it was symptomatic, but... And if you see that you have correctly dilated the patient, you don't have to come back systematically soon. One type of uh, patient I was wondering, to, uh, I was curious to get your take on it. And it's a type of patient that I've seen on an occasion where, because you, you mentioned the term the upper pouch, and I think it's a really important one, where you have almost a, it's a relative differential in caliber of the esophagus. Like not so, a stricture, so it but is that's a, just how it's they are. It's a relatively yeah. narrow, mm -hmm. but it is, seems to be a reasonable diameter that shouldn't be important for, for swallowing. And yet certain foods are getting hung up in that proximal dilated segment, and almost like a shelf uh, appearance. 
what do you typically do in that situation? I will delay him. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> yeah. what I have typically done yeah. to try and yeah. smooth out the because differential. If you scope him, it's because he has symptoms. Yeah. If he has symptoms, you are here, you delay him. Yeah. And it, most often it helps. Yeah, it helps. But that I find that a challenging group because yeah. it's. I have this one kid, and he always comes in with grapes stuck in that upper pouch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so delay him. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thank you. So you know, we we've spent most of the uh, episode on the you know clinical evaluation and management uh, issues related to EATF, but we know that you're also involved in some really interesting basic science research, trying to understand the mechanisms behind EATF. Mm-hmm. Can you share some of your work in this area and and where you hope that work will take us? Yes, sure. It's uh, very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I started uh, a new research program a few years ago. It was maybe three or four years ago. Uh, it's now funded by the CIHR, which are the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, the Federal uh, Institute. Uh, and this uh, program was to try to understand the mechanisms behind the atresia because we have absolutely no idea why these patients have this malformation. To do this, we use induced pluripotent stem cells from patients and we compare them to uh, controlled cells. Mm. Uh, induced pluripotent stem cells have the property of being able to be differentiated in any human tissue. And when uh, we differentiate this patient, we actually mimic the first step of the embryology of esophagus, of trachea, of lungs. And using this technique, we can try to reproduce what happened during the the development of uh, tracheoesophageal apparatus, which occurs between the fourth and fifth weeks of gestation in humans. And of course, it's absolutely impossible to study embryo of four to, uh, to, to six, uh, to uh, fifth weeks of uh, gestation. Yeah. Most people it's don't even possible. know they're pregnant yet. So in vivo, <laughs> it's not possible. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we try to uh, study that in, uh, in vitro mm-hmm. using these cells. And we have pretty interesting results. Now, uh, we have not completed the program, of course, mm-hmm. but uh, I think that it's, uh, it's really promising. And uh, we are very excited to find maybe why this patient developed uh, this uh, congenital malformation. We also aim to use these cells to uh, product uh, uh, an artificial esophagus for this patient. Uh, With the help of the tissue engineering techniques, we aim to build a tube with the tissue engineering techniques and to put the uh, cells of the patient differentiated in esophageal epithelium, in esophageal muscle, and maybe in enteric neurons, to put that in the tube. And if the patient, of course, needs to have a new esophagus, for instance, for the very long gap, uh, situation may imagine in the future to use a neoesophagus with the own cells of the patient, so without the need of immunosuppression. Wow! Wow! Okay, so I just want to make sure I understand. So these uh, these stem cells that you're talking about, these are patients who have EA. 
Yes. 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 And then do you have stem cells of patients who don't? So of that you compare yeah. oh. and we compare them. Yeah. Wow. We also have very interesting cases. For instance, uh, we have cells uh, from a patient with EATF and lung agenesis. It's sometimes reported. So he has uh, the he has only one lung. And we have also an interesting case of a patient with a thyroid agenesis associated to EATF. That means that and these are very specific organs mm-hmm. and we know that the development of these organs are also very specific. So we have patients without EATF. Well controls, mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. patients. Controls, yeah. We have uh, children with EATF, we have children with EATF and lung agenesis, children with EATF with thyroid agenesis, and we know that all these organs share the same genes during their development. Wow. So it will be really, really interesting. Do you get the tissues during surgery? No, unfortunately. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. it's so very complicated to yeah. operate because most often they operated uh, in the middle of the night and the surgeon it's difficult to uh, mobilize yeah. <laughs> yeah. to keep something for the research. That makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. Wow. That's we'll very to- cool. So you've said that your project isn't complete yet, and, and but you are seeing some interesting yeah, preliminary results. Um, <laughs> are, is there anything that you can share? And also, uh, when do you envision the uh, project to, to round out, at least the current project you're working on? Yeah. Uh, yes, of course, I can share. Uh, we have published. So. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> uh, so, no, we have seen that in the uh, cells during the, the differentiation from the uh, uh, very early stage of the cells to uh, uh, esophageal epithelium. In the patient cells, we see that the different genes involved in the development of the esophagus are not well expressed. Mm-hmm. And this uh, SOX, this is a gene is SOX2, and this SOX2 gene, uh, which is uh, lower, uh, which has an expression lower in the patient, has been shown in the animal models as extremely important for the development of the esophagus. And for instance, for mice with a knockout for these genes, mm-hmm. they have EATF. So that means that we, we have something very clear which could uh, suggest that in the patient intrinsically they have something which leads to an esophageal malformation. Mm. Okay. I think as, you know, I was just thinking about just being pregnant. And sometimes I think as a mom or as a parent, you may have some guilt, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's nothing that the mother is doing during pregnancy is what I'm hearing. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, we've talked so much today. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. If you could give us three takeaways for our listeners, what are the three big things you would want them to remember? Okay, yeah. So I would say the first point is that uh, this congenital malformation has a long-life impact on children and adult health. Mm. So it's very important to, uh, to keep that in mind. Uh, that means that the period of transition, and we say it a word with that, is uh, critical and it needs to be carefully considered. As I said, we have recently published recommendation for mm-hmm. the transition of this patient, and I, I um, recommend to go and read this recommendation and, and of course, to, uh, to use them for sure. the patient. And we, we'll, put, we'll put a link in our show notes for it. Oh, good idea. Yeah. 
Um, the second point is to underline and to highlight the importance of a multidisciplinary management of this patient. I think we have to talk together, I mean, MDs, professional, but we have also to talk with the patients and with the families. So it's so important to have this discussion together and uh, I am uh, convinced that we improve the care of the patients and the families with uh, our multidisciplinary clinic. Mm -hmm. The third point is that even if we have uh, made a I think good progresses, uh, and we have improved the care of this patient and of the families. It's uh, very important to continue uh, to pursue research and to work together. When I say together, it's uh, the different centers together and to collaborate because it's a rare disease. It's mm -hmm. less than one case for uh, 2,000 births. So it's considered as a rare disease. And as uh, all rare diseases, they are very difficult to study. So we have to collaborate together. And uh, I think this is uh, probably the most important thing to improve yeah. the care of these patients. Oh, that's a great list and lots for uh, all the le various levels and types of listeners that we have out mm -hmm. there to, to think about. Uh, Dr. Four, thank you again for spending the time with us today. This has been, you know, fantastic. Uh, when you think of your career and, and the path that you've taken, uh, what would you say has been some of the best advice you've received? And what advice would you have for our listeners? I would say patient first. I would say believe in you and never give up. I like it. That's so important, especially if you're going into research, because if you're looking for funding or publishing, there's a lot of times that yeah. you have to use that never give up mentality. Absolutely. We've talked about that a few times. Exactly. So thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was a great conversation with oh, Dr. Ford. So I learned a lot about this really challenging but great group of patients. And it's so much of pediatric GI in a nutshell with this population. Yes, we really want to thank him for spending the time to sit down with us. And we hope you enjoyed listening as much as we do. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you liked what you heard, it always helps us if you want to support the podcast uh, to do one of the following three things. One, tell somebody about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. And you can also get through it through www.naspigan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time. Bye. Bye.